This initiation ceremony involved the sub-incision of the penis, which is where the penis is um, sliced open upwards and, uh, and opened up. Hamid, oh, no. Hamid's face at the moment is oh, a classic. Oh, no, like yeah. a sausage. Like, like cutting open a sausage, oh, yeah. No. What? Yeah. What? I can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. Welcome to Blab Codes. My name is Samit Siddiqui. In this episode, I sat down and talked to Dr. Alex Norman, who's a senior lecturer for the Masters of Research course offered at Western Sydney University. Alex is a super nice dude. Um, I've only, prior to this uh, interview, had only met him a handful of times. And in fact, when I was writing my PhD, not my PhD, my thesis, he offered to read it and give me feedback, which was super nice of him to do. but Alex is a, also obviously a very smart guy, and in this episode, he dropped some knowledge on us about why studying religion is fascinating, or how he got into religious studies. Uh, he talks to us about religious tourism, which isn't what you think it is, and uh, he also talks about how studying religion can facilitate social cohesion. Um, interestingly, for his PhD, Alex actually walked over a thousand kilometers to study and interview people who didn't even belong to that specific religion but were going undergoing this religious journey that many christians uh, undergo in europe so really fascinating conversation i really enjoyed it and i think you guys will too here we go but yeah as i was saying earlier i actually was interested in uh, religious studies and theology and um, i think i had probably a deeper interest in science and specifically the hard sciences because even when I got into science I had psychology and a bachelor of science and I chose to go towards the bachelor of science so I still have a lot of interest in theology and and religions and why people believe in what they believe um, and I'm hoping you can uh, teach me a couple of stuff today <laughs> okay how about we start with this question why did you decide to study religion Ooh, uh, that's a good question this is, this is going to be a bit of an Entish answer. Do you know the Ents from Lord of the Rings where their names are basically the whole history of their life? Um, the Ents of the trees that walk around, you know, the trees that walk around? Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I yeah. Like so I was a big fan of Lord of the Rings. I still am a big fan of Lord of the Rings, but, but yeah. Um, why did I study religion? I, um, I was, I've always been really interested in why people do the things that they do. And um, when I was growing up, my, my mother was very interested in Buddhism. And my dad was an electrical engineer, um, as an electronics engineer. He designs circuits and does radio telemetry stuff. And um, that, that, that kind of, that, those worldviews like butt heads in a certain way. Um, but they're complementary in others. And... I was always very fascinated by what drove people to understand the world, like how they understood the world. And so when I came to university, I 
you know, I did like lots of students. I tried psychology and anthropology. And one of the things that was on offer at Sydney University was religious studies. And in fact, that's why I had chosen Sydney University over, uh, I think I also got an offer for the University of New um, New England. Yeah. Because um, uh, Sydney had this great religious studies department. And as soon as I started, like it was, the, one, it was one of those instances where the first the first minute of the first lecture, like I was just hooked. I can remember my lecturer, Tony Swain, uh, standing up the front um, talking about how he had, during his doctoral field work, had witnessed an initiation ceremony amongst um, an Indigenous Australian group. I think it might have been an Aranda um, tribe. And, um, uh, you know, in the 1980s and uh, how he'd been this initiation ceremony involved the sub incision of the penis, which is where the penis is um, sliced open upwards and, uh, and open up. Hamid, oh, no. Hamid's face at the moment is oh, a classic. Oh, no, like yeah. a sausage. Like, like cutting open a sausage, oh, yeah. Oh, no, what? Yeah. What? And he said that this, yeah, he had that same reaction, but he said that he stood there looking at these boys who were bleeding profusely but with these expressions of uh, just um, pure, like, joy um, and pride on their face. And he thought to himself, why, how is it possible for somebody to have that kind of reaction to that obviously physically painful experience? And, and the reason was because it fulfilled, this is the story that he told, the, it, they were becoming men in that moment. That was an, initi- an initiation ceremony, right? It was where they st- ceased being children and started becoming men. Right. And um, that was only understandable within this other huge complex of beliefs and practices that, that we would call like a religion or a, or a worldview. Um, and that to, to understand why those those kids were having this reaction you needed to know everything about that worldview right that is so interesting uh that's such a cool way to opening a lecture yeah the first first lecture of first year right how could you not catch every student in that net that's that's incredible you know as you're telling me that story um the i think the maasai warriors the the africans i think they put mud on their face and they wait until it dries up and then they get circumcised and they get circumcised with like wood not even rock mm. and if they if they like cringe or if they make any sort of facial uh, movements that mud will crack and so they'll they'll get labeled as being a coward mm. and so these guys are going through this tremendously painful experience um an experience is like a rite of passage as as you said but it they go through that pain and obviously there's a, a, a bunch of joy that uh, a feeling of joy and accomplishment that comes out of that because you just went through something difficult and now you're part of a community mm. which is really cool and that's that's one of the main things that that we're interested in religious studies is that community aspect right, right. it's like of all of the things that religions might do community is pretty common like that that's that's the that's the thing that seems to be most common it's, it's a way for kind of driving a community together so religion always seems to be like the mechanism that 
that a society or us as human beings use to bring us together. Yeah, one of the mechanisms. One of the mechanisms. Yeah, we have. I think we have lots as a species, and religion. The thing that we choose to call religion, or the the things that we choose to call religions, right. are amongst them. Can you clarify what's the difference between religious studies and theology? So theology is the 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 study of of God, the theo God and logos on the end. Um, the account of uh, theology is usually what um, uh, people inside a religious group study. They're trying to figure out um, who this entity is and what the, what kind of characteristics they have, um, what their commandments are. Um, it's uh, the theology. You sometimes get phrases like Buddhist theology, though, which is weird because you know, in most forms of Buddhism there aren't any gods. Mm. Um, so their theology is used as like the, the kind of like cosmology, I guess you might say, an account of the cosmos of the universe. Um, but but the, the the kind of lay version of it is that theology is what say Christians study about their own faith. Mm-hmm. Religious study is the study of what Christians do by people from the outside, for example. Wow. Um, so religious studies is the field of study that is interested in stuff that we choose to call religious. And you might be hearing that I'm, I keep on saying stuff that we choose to call religions or stuff that we choose. That's because I come from the part, like the little niche area of religious studies that problematizes the term religion. Could you elaborate on that? So like one of the, one of the interesting problems for us in religious studies in, in my area, um, is that religion is a, is a term um, that seems... It's one of those terms that we use all the time in everyday language with, without any problem. Mm. Everyone kind of more or less knows what, what we mean. Um, but when you really subject it to critical analysis, that is when you attempt to insert it into um, scientific studies or into... Um, critical anthropological sociological studies or look through history you need to come up with a definition like a proper definition Mm. you can't just assume that your reader knows what you mean Um, and so the area of religious studies that I'm referring to is the area that's looked for definitions said well okay how have people defined this thing and it turns out that we um, obviously, it's bound to the English language. We use the term religion in English. Um, a similar term doesn't exist in a lot of other languages, um, or the, the word religion is co-opted um, and, and used similarly. Um, but when we look at the history of the use of the term, um, it's a confusion. Um, sometimes it's used to refer to um, a group of, uh, say, qualities, um, like stuff that things, people, stuff that people do, right? Like giving charity like, and fasting, yeah, and rituals and congregating together, and you know. Right. Um, but other times, it's used as a collection of um, the 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 qualities of the thing, this imagined thing itself. So, like, it's got to be a belief in something, and it's 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 got to have a set of texts. Um, um, that, 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 that kind of are authoritative and that, that everyone in that group more or less believes in. Uh, and one of the things that when you look through the history of the use of the word religion, 
is that usually the, the, the definer has quite a specific end in mind. That is, they want to exclude certain things mm. from the category religion and include other things. And so when we look in, say, political history, we can see um, the British colonial governments using the term religion basically to help classify um, people as uh, human or, or subhuman. Because human, one of the things that, that humans do, which is pretty reliable and fair enough, is they do religion. Mm-hmm. So if you can classify somebody as not having religion, then they're, 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 they're kind of not quite human. And that's the way Indigenous Australians were viewed when uh, white invasion first occurred. They, they had no religion. That's one of the ways that, you know, in that, in that kind of taxonomic process of trying to figure out who these, who these beings were, right. who were so different to, um, to the British, one of the things that they didn't do, you know, like we did it, so their thinking went, was they, they didn't go to church. Mm-hmm. They didn't believe in a God. They, they seemed to just kind of run around they had rituals and stuff but they, it obviously wasn't religion you know that that was the story right. you know it was something else it was maybe it was pre-religion or something like that um so the, the religion is a political term it's it's used to to, to it's used hmm. um and so i come from this part of religious studies that that kind of um is intensely fascinated by the use of the term religion. So it's, it's kind of religious studies, but it's like the study of religious studies right. is, is the area that, that, right. that is one of the areas that I have a foot in. Yeah. That's fascinating because we do see religion get, um, it gets used in so many different contexts. You know, it gets used for terrorism. It gets used as a peaceful humanitarian movement. Um, and and it, to me, I've always thought of it as a more of an umbrella term that was very enigmatic to pin down what exactly a religion is. You have the monolithic religions like Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, but then you get to things like Scientology. Like, is that considered as a religion? You know, so it gets really tricky. The question that I'm curious about is, so in, in university, you... You, this, this lecture, I really uh, indulge your fascination in religion. Then how did that evolve? Did you immediately want to become a researcher? How did you go from there? How did your interest evolve further? Uh, so I'm... I'm the, the, that story for me needs some backstory. Okay. Right. So I started university as a 24-year-old. I went to university. I, I never finished high school. I still don't have like my high school certificate, which is in New South Wales, the the, the highest level of high school, or the SAT in the states, for example. Okay. I got sick when I was in year eleven, and um, I I kind of lost interest in school, and um, I, I, was, I was just sick a lot. I, I got German measles, and then uh, no, I got um, glandular fever, and then immediately after got German measles. And I think I was just really worn down. Year 11 in New South Wales is a very tough year. A lot of people say it's tougher than year 12. Um, And uh, I was just really physically worn down and I kept on getting sick. And one day my mum just said to me in a a moment that I look back on as like unparalleled brilliance in parenting, she said, "Why why don't you drop out of school? 
I was like, well, part of me, like the teenager, part of me was like, yeah, drop out of school. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, but, but like deep in me, I knew that was the right thing because I was just kind of massively unhappy and really unhealthy mm. and I just needed time off. And I did, after recovering, I did like so many other high school dropouts do. I, I went and worked at McDonald's um, and tried to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And my parents had one condition, though, on dropping out of school, which was that I had to keep on learning. Like it didn't matter, they, they, it didn't matter to them what I did with my life so long as I kept on learning something. Mm. Um, and so I'd always been fascinated by engineering, the way things are put together, the way we, we kind of solve problems mm. um, and I loved music at that stage so I went and did an audio engineering course and became an audio engineer and I, I, I did a little bit of work in that field for a while but I realized that I didn't kind of I wasn't enamored of it you know I didn't love it um, and but I did I, I had this kind of desperate need to go traveling like so many Australians do um, and uh, so I went and lived in the UK for a year and travelled around Europe. And while I was doing that, I, 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 like I began to be the, the person that people spoke to, like when, when they're having a hard time um, or like when, when you know, they're in a relationship and the relationship was a bit rocky, yeah. people would speak to me. So I kind of became the, the informal counsellor for a lot of my friends. And one day somebody said to me, well, why don't you go and do a psychology degree and become a psychologist? And I was like, well that's a good idea then, then I could actually have a career and like I like doing this but I still had this kind of this interest in what people believe so that kind of fitted with that nicely and I was a bit bummed to have to cut my travels short but whatever so I went back to Sydney and um, I went and did a, a university preparation course at University of Sydney which allowed me to get into university even though I didn't have my high school qualification and uh, I ended up in religious studies and I, I kind of did first year psychology and just realized that it wasn't for me I just didn't like it that's a bit unfortunate now that I look back on it because mm. there are a lot of things that I actually would like to have pursued there particularly in the kind of delving into the more neuroscientific elements um but but that's okay I, but I didn't know that I I didn't know that I wanted to be a researcher I just knew that I wanted to go through the full degree um I, I knew I wanted to kind of go through do honors um, and then maybe go and work for the government mm. or something like that. Like trying to, figure, trying to help people in the world who, you know, this was when I started university, 2001 was my first year in university. And I can still remember um, going to, lying in bed one night, um, watching TV um, in September. And um, uh, I, was, I was watching, I still remember so clear, I was watching The West Wing. Um, and uh, the the coverage broke into a news um, crossover from New York. And my wife and I are kind of lying there thinking, what, what the hell's going on? Is this part of the West Wing? Mm -hmm. And it was the, like, the September 11 oh. um, attacks. And, um, you know, that was a huge event. And I, I just remember kind of walking into university the next day and I, it was an anthropology lecture. It was first up. And... Um, the lecturer kind of did what a lecturer should do in that moment and said, like, what we're here, we're here trying to understand people. And what we saw happening last night is what happens when people don't understand each other somehow. You guys need to kind of pay attention to these events and 
and try and make the world a different place. And that really profoundly affected me. Like I, I knew that I wanted to do that then, but I didn't know how. And after I finished honours, like I, I, you know, maybe many honours or finishing masters students have the same kind of reaction you, you've kind of put in all of this work done years of intense kind of study and I was like well it doesn't I don't feel like there's a job here for me I could go and do a PhD but great mm. another three years of right. yeah <laughs> another three years of grinding it out and then what and so I was like screw this I'm not gonna be do do research I'm just gonna go and work for the government and you know, do, do, do some kind of good in the world. And I tried to get a job with the government and had a bunch of interviews and didn't get any positions. And one day my old honours supervisor sent me an email and said, hey, I've got this research assistant position. It's only 20 hours, but would you be interested in coming along? And I was like, sure, okay. <laughs> I need the money, fine, whatever. Um, and, but, but like, again, like within minutes, like I sat down and the research project was looking, um, through ancient, oh, not ancient really, um, kind of middle ages, um, historical accounts for mentions of, um, Christian saints whose names were similar to pre-Christian English, um, gods and goddesses. So trying to, trying to map the um, the transfer of, of of divine entities who had been pagan, as we would call them, um, yeah, you know, um, gods and goddesses, and then when Christianity came along, they kind of co-opted these gods and goddesses and turned them into saints. Oh, I I don't know. I thought the saints were just people who. The saints, I from from what I understood, was in the Middle Ages, and these were actual real people. Most of them, yeah, most most of them are real people, and and here's an interesting sociological fact: most of them were the children of really rich, they're rich kids. You either, you, I think it's something like seventy percent, seventy, sixty-six, something like that percent of saints are, are rich kids, um, or they're super poor. Um, yeah, it's it's just like to to become a saint, you kind of had to be rich, kind of thing. Right. Um, which is kind of counterintuitive because usually they're kind of living in a cave and you know doing something really ascetic. Right. Um, but 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 anyway, there, there are some. Most saints are were real people or, or supposedly real people, but some saints were um, mythical figures. Mythical figures, yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Like the the, the 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 word we use in English, Easter, um, comes from the the pre-Christian goddess Eustra, um, the fertility. The goddess, goddess a, a fertility goddess. Yeah. Um, yeah there, there are lots of other examples. Can I ask you a question? I know we're kind of uh, going on a tangent here. Um, there was the Dead Sea Scrolls, and from what I remember reading or watching or something, but there were a, a group of scholars. Christ, there was like all these Christian scholars, and there was one agnostic scholar who looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, and he came to the conclusion that these were just like fertility rituals and the consumption of hallucinogenic drugs like like mushrooms or, or DMT he, he supposed that uh, actually the burning bush may have been a burning acacia bush which, con- which oh, contained right. DMT yeah. and might have put Moses in a hallucinogenic uh, trance or state where he actually thought he was speaking to God mm. what are your thoughts on, on that? as a researcher my thought is what is the data? I think the Dead Sea Scrolls, <laughs> but 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 no, that for that for that for that claim, because um, it may well be that that there could be a bush that when it's burned, 
um, the smoke causes you to hallucinate. But it's a pretty big stretch mm. to 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 speculate that this massive historically important event some dude getting high off a burning bush but the, basically affected the course of history for <laughs> apparently the, for millions of people the, the, um, the plant species the acacia species apparently they're very prevalent in the area that Moses was hanging around so, mm-hmm. so he just set one on fire <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's definitely a, a radical approach but it's 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 if you want to make the claim that it is, if you want to make a certain claim, yeah. it's a radical approach. If you want to speculate, that's fine. Sure. And that's not like the way you put it is not an unreasonable speculation. There were many of them around. Yeah. Um, it may have been not kind of sitting there kind of living as a burning bush, but, but they might have harvested the branches and then put it on a fire. And, um, you know, that's not an unreasonable speculation for sure. Yeah. And hallucinogens play an important role in religion. Yeah. 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 A lot of religions start with hallucinogenic experiences like Islam. Um, yeah. it was Prophet Muhammad in that cave who saw uh, an angel. And supposedly when he got out of the cave the angel stopped him from jumping off like the cliff or whatever. So he's seeing something there and he's convinced it's there. Whether it's actually there or not, we can't really determine. Mm. But it, it appears to be a central thing in all religions even like religions in south america where they have the shamanistic rituals where they take things like um ayahuasca they go through these rituals so it's definitely part of part of uh religions it's it's common yeah i wouldn't say it's like i wouldn't i wouldn't attach a universal to it um but it's it's very common and that's partly because religions often confront like the big questions the questions that are kind of beyond beyond empirical Mm. um they're they're often interested in like time and macro history um and um one of the things that when we look at the record of people who the phenomenological record of people who consume hallucinogens is that there's this interesting it, it it seems to change the way time and space are experienced um and that it's it's kind of then you know reasonable to 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 say well oh i i i kind of i took this thing i ate this thing or drank this thing Mm. and it caused me then to do what well if my worldview is that i i believe in a you know a deity of some kind and that deity is outside kind of time and space and I took this thing that caused my conception of time and space, at least for a little while, to change. Then maybe this thing was kind of connecting me um, to that to that entity somehow, or at least getting me closer right. uh, in some respect. Like that's that's fair enough. Plus, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of kind of insight to be had um, when you see the world differently. I mean, that's that's one of the that's one of the the interesting things about you know, putting your researcher hat on and, you know, like truly adopting a scientific, the scientific method um, is that you, it, you, you are forced to look for um, unexpected um, or unusual mm-hmm. uh, connections. And hallucinogens are like a shortcut mm-hmm. to that. You know, you, you, you see things in a completely different way. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. But as you're talking, I remember... I think it was a study, it was a neuroscientific study where they were looking at how if they stimulated certain parts of the brain, people felt like there was a supernatural power 
around them or they felt the presence of a supernatural being um, and that's really fascinating because uh, from people that I've heard on, on, on the internet that have take, taken hallucinogenic drugs they feel like there's the presence of another like a, a being mm-hmm. and, and a lot of them you can get woo woo with this but I think it's more interesting about how the consciousness works how our brain works I think it gives you insight on that but it's interesting that our brains are almost uh, they are tuned in to have these religious experiences which is trippy mm. so, so then see, see I can't help this but this is my training huh. You used the category religious experiences, oh, and so there's, <laughs> that's, right? That's so there's, the, so you said that there are the, there's the things that there's things that happen which are experiences, but then there's this subcategory of them which are religious, which is somehow then different to all of the other types of experiences yeah. that we might have and that we might qualify differently. Yeah. So what is it about the quality of that subcategory that causes you to label it religious? I, I guess what I meant was um, they felt like there was a. The, the presence of a higher being mm-hmm. I think um, that's what the, the reports were and I, like as I said that I'm like shit I should have probably been more specific <laughs> <laughs> you just spent five minutes going through the difficulty of actually characterizing what religion is you know yeah but that's 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 why I find it really interesting because like this is one of the the, the great lessons for me from that that part of religious studies and why I think it's so transferable elsewhere is that you look at the way people use words and it tells you something about the way they're thinking and that mm. that makes sense because when we use words we're we're externalizing our our, our mental processes um, but but it also tells you something about the way people see the world and, and seek to arrange mm. the world um, and um, looking at uh, the way we use say the term religion can can tell us a lot about um you know if you wanted to to look at it from a kind of governance point of view um it can tell us about how governments want to do things like divvy up funding for um resources for you know healthcare education stuff like that um like what i mean by that is that um Religions also, in addition to having things, you know, often like beliefs in God or, or things like rituals and, you know, temples, churches, mosques, whatever, whatever, they also often participate in um, that community dimension that I mentioned before, and that can include things like healthcare and education. Well, right. um, and um, that it, 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 when governments try and deal with religion, because, you know, governments have to deal with everything mm-hmm. that people do. And, and religion, however problematic that term is, is one of the things that people do. Um, and so, yeah, when we, when we look at the way a government uses the term religion, for example, we can get a sense of like, what, their, what their goal is, what, what, they, what they intend. Um, and I'm not, not, this is not like, well, it's superstitious and well, I've got to keep an eye on the government, that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's just about you know, being open and transparent right. and like... Um, holding ourselves to account for the words that we that we use yeah. you know if, if we if and and asking like you, is that really what you mean like i did just did then with you like like what actually do you mean when you say that yeah. um, and i think like that I, I think generally that's a good thing to do oh, definitely it, it prevents uh miscommunication and building up misconceptions of mm. what other people were trying to and I think a lot of times we try to police the words and, and not try to understand what the person's intent was and I think that's important 
going back to your your research journey because I know we went on a little <laughs> tangent here. Um, so you you went and worked as a research assistant. Um, and then is that when you decided you want to do a PhD? Yeah, yeah. So within the space of that contract, that 20-hour contract, uh, I knew I just I wanted to do a PhD. I had a first-class honours from the University of Sydney, um, nice. but uh, um, I'd finished with an 83. Um, anything above 80 was a first-class, um, and I'd finished with 83, and I was really disappointed with that mark because yeah, partly I knew I was disappointed with it because it meant that I wouldn't get a scholarship. And without a scholarship, it was going to be at the very least really hard to do a PhD. Um, and so, you know, I thought, well, it's it's what I want to do. It's it's like I, I, I could just it, the, 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 the kind of flame of love for finding stuff out had been rekindled, you know, and uh, I knew I had to do that. So I, was, I just thought to myself and I spoke to my wife. I'm like, you know, you, you've got to pursue that thing which sets you aflame. Mm. And so we, that, was, that was her advice? Yeah. Wow. Um, clever person. Yeah, she's much cleverer than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's good to team up with a uh, smarter person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, so I, I decided to do a PhD regardless. Like, no scholarship, screw it. I'll, I'll make it work. Like, if I have to do this, I have to do it. Mm. Um, so I'll do it. Um, so I started trying to kind of compensate for that, though. Like, what are the ways in which I could get a scholarship? And I started, like, writing some journal articles to try and get them published. Um, and But it just didn't seem to be happening. And I just started my PhD. And this opportunity to go to a conference in northern ireland came up mm. um it was on like my topic exactly and what um, was your topic so my the topic for my phd thesis was what i called spiritual tourism um so i was interested in why people travel um to religious places mm-hmm. temples you see i used the word religious places right, there right. the places <laughs> that are different from other places <laughs> and that we'll choose to call religious for some reason. <laughs> And you can just end up spiralling down, like chasing your tail, like the, the definitional tail chasing, which is awful. Um, but, but screw it. Religious places, um, temples, um, mosques. mosques, churches. It's like Macau, where millions of people go. Yeah, yeah. Why, why, do, why do tourists go to those places when they don't belong to that religious tradition? Oh, so you're looking at it in that sense. Yeah. I thought you were looking at it, why do Christians go to, I don't know, on the way uh, to Jerusalem or yeah. the Muslims go to Mecca but you're actually looking at it as people who are who don't even belong in that group why are they going to those places yeah and lots of people do that like Mecca is an exception because you have to usually you have to be Muslim to, to, to go to Mecca but most other places in the world there are there are lots of tourists who 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 go there or who do the things. So one of the things I was also interested in is not just visitation, like going to a place, but doing the things that that people who belong to that religious tradition do there. And so that this, this like this really scrambles definitions because if your definition of a person who who is say Christian mm. is like a really hard empirical one a behavioral one like a christian is a person who does christian things mm-hmm. then you would look at these tourists in that place at that moment and say well they're obviously a christian yeah 
They're, they're doing all of those things. But they don't identify. They don't identify. Things. Yeah, that's what really fascinated me. And so I wanted to know why. Like, why do those people go and do those things? That's interesting. Does that have anything to do with the New Age movement? E- e- yes. Where people are trying to... I, I'm not even sure if I have the definition of New Age correct. Where people are trying to somehow bring spirituality back into their lives. And it's not through the uh, what we normally think about, you know... Uh, spirituality it's more about meditation and breathing and all this other stuff that we see it's not like going to the church it's not going to the mosque and praying five times a day do I have that understanding correct or am I just completely (laughs) (laughs) misinterpreting what the new age movement is yeah so so there's probably a little bit of misinterpretation there but that's that's fine yours is a perfectly reasonable and acceptable popular understanding of what new age might refer to Mm Um, but but new age typically is um, most closely connected with uh, responses to I guess modern life and secularization. So it's usually a move away from bigger traditional congregational forms of um, meaning, purpose, and identity work which we catch under the umbrella of the term religion um, and uh, often individuating them so making them into individual forms rather than communal forms um, even though they might take place kind of alongside and with others you're kind of the the the, the soteriology that's the word of the day for you Hamid. soteriology the account of salvation um, the, the, the salvific element is self, like, like I am saved, I am, I am kind of realized, self-actualized, uh, you know, I have salvation when something in me changes, um, when I have some kind of realization about the nature of the universe or, or when I kind of <clears throat> um, conduct particular rituals for for my own kind of benefit so the new age often gets kind of associated with selfishness as a result but but one of the important things with the term new age is the the term itself like new age because it's associated with this idea that we're about to enter into this new kind of age of humanity Mm. where things will be much like more elevated in a spiritual sense like we've been living our kind of kind of mundane um kind of base lives now but where the age of aquarius is about to kind of turn and begin and 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 then this this kind of spiritual age will will be ushered in so so it does have a little bit to do with that because tourists traveling from say australia to thailand to sit in uh, monasteries and meditate for three months, that kind of only becomes possible because of a bunch of that New Age stuff occurring. Even though they, I wouldn't call those people New Agers necessarily, oh, yeah. it, they are able to go and do that because new, the New Age movement occurred. Oh, I was going to ask, are, are they doing that in, in, because you know, they have this belief that if they go through these rituals and they will achieve self-actualization? Sometimes, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell me about your your research. So, you had this question, and how? What I'm curious about, uh, coming as a, the, from the hard sciences like biochemistry, we have cells that we can run experiments with, and we can, you know, treat them with compounds and observe them. But how do you do research 
in religious states. Well, it's, it's much the same. You know, you 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 trap people <laughs> in little cages <laughs> and pour chemicals on them, and here you go, <laughs> yeah. here you go, self-actualized with this. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, it's uh, one of the one of the challenges of the humanities and the social sciences is that lack of control. Um, in in many of the sciences, we, it's much easier to control. The hard sciences are usually where, ironically, are where control is easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and the harder you get, the easier it becomes to control. Exactly. So yeah. Physics is much easier to control. Boom. When you get to biology, it gets all weird and tricky. Yeah, because context becomes so important. Mm. And you have that problem of, like, you can do some interesting, really, like, of course, plenty of interesting biology um, uh, in vitro, mm. but then you then you have the in vivo problem. And, Nothing <laughs> works. <Yeah>. What's <laughs> um, And so, uh, yeah, the, the humanities and the social sciences have this epic control problem um which means that which was one of the reasons why you you, you we, we ought to one of the reasons why we tend to shy away from calling it science because um even though I'm, I'm i think that that's you know problematic that the issue of control and experimentation doesn't occur so much so what like your question was what did i do yeah how do you how do you study how do you study that how do you study people going well the, the basic act is observation the basic empirical act is observation um, so I um, travelled to India to uh, just watch people and interview them. Um, so I conducted semi-structured interviews with people. Um, and um, at the start of my PhD, I was trying to figure out, like, I had to pick sites because you've got to be pragmatic too. Like, mm-hmm. there's way more data that I could possibly collect yeah. um, and analyse. Right. Uh, so I had to kind of pick, pick my battles, as it were. So I decided to concentrate on uh, India, and not just the whole of India, but but one specific site in India, which is Rishikesh, mm-hmm. uh, which um, is where the Beatles went when when they were um, hanging out with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Oh wow! Um, is that why you went to that specific place? <laughs> the, yeah. Well, yeah, partly because because after the Beatles went there, it became known as the place where where Westerners could go. And even to this day, it's known as the yoga capital of the world. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's why I went there. Because yeah. um, I knew that, 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 that there I would find data. Because yeah. like, I could have just kind of randomly put a pin on the map and said, I'll go there and look for data. But that would be stupid. Hmm. Like, you have to go where you know the data are. Right. Um, uh, or at least know where you suspect the data are. And I, and I knew people would be in Rishikesh. Because part of my data as well was like blogs and travel books that people had written. Um, those kind of formed my, my hypotheses about what I thought was going on. Um, and the other place that I was interested in, I wanted, I wanted two sites, two different sites that were kind of contrasty. Mm. The other site that I chose was the Camino de Santiago, which is a Catholic pilgrimage through uh, Western Europe. And um, so uh, in India, I went to Rishikesh and I watched people and I interviewed them and I took heaps of notes, um, which, you know, if you were to translate that into the field of, um, say, biology or or ecology, Mm. um, 
that'd be going and, and watching, uh, uh, you know, birds doing bird things. Yeah. Um, you can't, can't really interview the birds, but, but, but if you could, you would. Yeah, you know? sense, yeah. yeah. Why are you eating that seed? Um, <laughs> and in, uh, in Europe, I went and I, I, I walked the pilgrimage with the pilgrims because oh. um, I wanted to capture people along the way. I wanted to see, um, one of my hypotheses was that along the, uh, as, as, the peri- as the, the act of travel progressed, the, its meaning for them would change. And that was based on some travel accounts that I'd read that, that when people set out on this pilgrimage, they, they were kind of setting out with one particular intention, but by the time they finished, it, was, it had turned into something else. Um, so I walked from Le Puy-en-Velay, in France to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. And how long is that distance? Uh, 1,698 kilometres. Holy oh, <laughs> shit, Alex. Yeah. Holy shit. It was cool. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. It's like walking from here to Melbourne, around yeah. there. Yeah, and back almost. And back? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's, it, like, it, it took me a while. It was like I started on September 11, 2007, and finished on like November 19 or something like that. Wow. Yeah, and I had a few break days in between, but I averaged like 25 Ks a day, something like that. That's so crazy. Yeah, it was great. It was cool. You know, I mean, it was great exercise. I was so fit. <laughs> I was so fit by the end of it. Um, <laughs> Came but, back with a six pack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like toned legs. <laughs> and they're like two years of back into normal life. And That's like, it. Yeah, I gotta go back to normal now. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. It all just turned into blubber after that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to China, man, and I'm afraid if I don't find a Brazilian jiu-jitsu place there, I'm going to come back weighing 100 kilograms. <laughs> like I need some sort of exercise. Yeah. So you went and you, so you interviewed these people uh, as they went through their journey. What did you find? So the, the really interesting finding for me was that the two sites differed quite markedly. Um, which you would expect, you know, the two, on the one hand, you expect, you know, the, the two different sites. One of them is a pilgrimage where people have to walk from, for, for, for weeks. The other is like a township where they go and either do meditation or yoga for weeks. So quite different experiences and you would expect things to be different. What, what really surprised me, however, was the, when I, the way I analyzed my interviews was I was asking people about why they were there. What brought them to this place, and what were they what were they hoping to achieve by by doing this? And um, what's and the way I interviewed, the way I analysed uh, those data was to like one of the things you do with uh, interviews is what's known as coding. You code the interviews. So when a person's talking about this topic, you kind of attach a little label that says, you know, they're talking about uh, they're talking about topic X. They're talking about topic Y now. Um, and so, uh, one so of the, that way you can quantify it. Yeah, uh, you, so you, you can. X came up. How many times Y came up? How many times Z came up? You can quantify it, um, and you can also look at the way the codes occur um, in relation to each other. Okay. Um, uh, so whether they co-occur commonly together, um, and um, uh, whether. Within the, so the code serves the the, the the act of coding serves the purpose on the one hand of being a label to say this was talked about, but also on the other hand to capture the text that the person said, the words that they actually said. 
Um, so that you can also say, well, when people were talking about topic A, what kinds of things did they say? Like, and, and from the way they said them, what can we infer about the way they understand topic A? Mm-hmm. One of the things that really surprised me with my data was that in the case of uh, Rishikesh and uh, going and doing yoga and meditation there. Did you find people more that didn't belong into the group compared to the Catholic one? Um, Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. I thought that's what you were going to say. I'm like, I just expect people who are willing to walk a thousand kilometers, they're going to believe in that religion because I ain't walking a thousand. <laughs> no, no, no. Over, like, part of this is a function of season, so that's a complication oh, there too. Okay. Um, but I walked in the like autumn, winter, right. um, and that's when it's least popular um, amongst Europeans and most popular amongst non-Europeans. Uh, and so part of the function of my data was that seasonality in the case of the Camino. Right. Uh, and in, in that case, I think it was like 90% of my data set were not Catholic. What? Yeah. And I interviewed, um, geez, I can't remember how many people I interviewed now, but you know, I interviewed people, I interviewed a lot of people. Um, and there are lots of people that I didn't interview who either who, because they weren't prepared to give me, um, uh, clearance. You have to get clearance from people to interview them they have to sign a form and you know it's a bit of kind of oh i'm not going to sign a form you know what are you going to use my signature for kind of thing (laughs) like that and that's that's fine you know you cannot but but i still gathered data from those people like i still took notes on them that kind of thing um um so yeah like about 90 percent of them weren't catholic that is so surprising and there were there were periods when none of them were catholic yeah along the way yeah like it was uh that was that was kind of surprising. In 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 Rishikesh, it was a little bit different because a lot of the people who went to Rishikesh identified themselves as, um, uh, you know, meditators or um, uh, yeah, yogi. I guess is the right term, but but it has a different connotation for me. Um, it's the yogi. Yogi suggests kind of somebody who is learned, but it is it does actually also mean like somebody who practices yoga. There we go with the tail chasing again. Um, so, what did you find in India? Then? So, so yeah, the, the 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 key finding in India was that people had um, were in their everyday lives um, realized that there was something wrong in their everyday life that they wanted to fix okay so they would go to rishikesh to learn tools techniques with which to fix the problem back in their life at home because one of the reasons was well, the one of the questions i asked was like why come here you can do yoga and meditate mm. like back in sydney or you know in vancouver or, or, or wherever, wherever you're from like like why come here mm. and part of it was just getting away like being in a different place, being on the other side of the world was a big one, like really far removed because you could just go to the next room. Mm. But, but there is actually an experiential difference to when you're on the other side of the world. Um, but part of it was this kind of, it's a little bit colonialist, but, but this actually is pretty strongly colonialist, um, this notion of being closer to the source. Like this is where yoga came from this is where meditation came from was was their rationale and um so being closer to its source was was somehow better but whatever the like the 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 most common motivating 
reason was I have a problem in my life and I feel like in Rishikesh I can learn something, a worldview, um, a technique of the mind or a technique of the body with which I can then go return home to my normal life and change, fix that problem. What was really interesting is then in the Camino in Europe, and it was different. Same, same fundamental issue, got a problem at home, something I need to solve. Mm. But there, the resolution was in the act of walking the Camino itself. So I'm going to go and walk the Camino de Santiago to, to think about this shit, oh. to figure it out myself, and then I'll return home having solved the problem. Oh. Like that's a really interesting qualitative difference in... In motivation, right. One but, you're looking for external help, and one is internal. Yeah, and you know, in a sense, yeah, yeah. Alex was actually um, talking about this. He's like, in in India, there tends to be this. Uh, there's a lot of gurus and people who appear to have answers. Does that come into play when, when you when you, like, think about the answers? Maybe they have the sort of concept in their head that you know. They're all these sort of gurus, these learned men. There's a lot of a lot of that, and yeah. I, I actually have a friend who did philosophy ten years in in uh, in, in India, and like we've spoken about it, and like he's also talking. And there's a Louis Thoreau do, uh, documentary yeah. that deals with it, so it's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So gurus are a big thing, and there's even um, there's a great article by um, Lizalotta Frisk, a um, a Swedish. A scholar um, called the Satsang Circuit, I think is its name, um, and that's about this. Satsang is like um, um, the Sanskrit word for lecture, kind of thing. Where, but where a guru speaks to a bunch of um, followers or, or just listeners, I suppose. Right. Um, and um, yeah, India is kind of full of full of gurus, people, you know, philosophers of the mind, um, religious figures. Um, um, I'm not. I'm like. I think a lot of them probably wouldn't claim that they have the answers, but they're prepared to talk about what they think the answers might be. Right. If you see the subtle kind of variation there, there are a few shunky figures as well. Um, a, few what, a few dodgy kind oh. of you know <laughs> people, um, but they're human. Like that's the yeah. thing. Like you know, it doesn't matter you know where you look. There there are assholes, unfortunately, everywhere. Yeah. Um, but a lot of a lot of the a lot of the gurus are genuine people who 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 probably act more like kind of group psychologists, I suppose. Right. Um, if that's if we were to categorize them in that way, like they would be the Tony Robbins uh, kind of thing, you know, the motivational speaker. Oh, Tony um, okay. I thought you said Tiny Robbins. Tiny Robbins. That's my Australian accent, man. <laughs> yeah, Tony. Okay, so there's there's a role for them to play in their community. It's not so much that they have like um, insidious intentions. It's more like I have to play this role even if it's not a conscious awareness that they're playing a role, but they are serving the community in a way or in one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. And, but, but in the context of my doctoral research, many of these gurus would come into Rishikesh. So they would fly into Rishikesh themselves to be able to speak to the Westerners who also flew in there. So it, was, it acted, Rishikesh was like a hub, oh. like a, this kind of, what would you call it, like a spiritual, <laughs> spiritual kind of hub um, where people wanting to learn about these um, techniques of thinking or, or, or worldviews or whatever mm. would foreigners would come in and, and gurus, not always Indian as well, there are plenty of foreign gurus coming into Rishikesh. 
um, would, would fly in as well. In fact, while I was there, I discovered a new religious movement that had never been categorised, never been documented before, and I wrote a journal, journal article on it. I was wow. the first person ever to write on this new religious movement. It only just started. It was like four or five years old at the time. Um, and that was really exciting because like new religious movements was one of the things that got me really intri- like intensely interested in religious studies. Because like a lot of people, like I figured, well, religion, that means Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, you know, thinking in big categories like that. Mm. And I did this unit in first year called New Religious Movements, which was looking at stuff that had kind of been, that had come up in the kind of 20th century. Right. Um, and all of a sudden I found myself in Rishikesh, like just surrounded by new religious movements. And, and there was one of them right there, like kind of forming in front of my eyes. Um, so I just had to kind of document it. And, and um, after many, many drafts, I got that article published. What um, was the name of the religion? Uh, at the time, they were called Great Freedom, um, but now they're called Balanced View. I think I read this on your on your bio. What, what are they like? What do they believe in? That that that's a good question. That that really confused me. Because <laughs> um, one of the things, like I asked the, um, the 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 people there, like like what's what's going on? What's the belief here? And they said, Oh, well, we don't have any beliefs. I was like, okay, well, fair enough. Uh, what do you practice then? And their response was similar. Like, we don't have any practices. And so, like, if, you're, if you are concerned with accounting, making note of the empirical data in the categories belief and practice, and these people say, eh, we don't have either of those, then you, you're screwed. Um, so I kind of had to just kind of sit back and watch and then make my own documentation about what they, they did and said. But essentially, it was all about awareness, um, about present, present-focused awareness. So mindfulness. Was, yeah, mindfulness is another way of conceiving of it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and like the core message is the same as the kind of core message of the mindfulness movement that um, being present-focused um, alleviates a lot of the kind of chaotic stress of day-to-day life where we are so. Um, torn in so many kind of pulled in so many directions by like social media email phone like work commitments family community like tugging us in lots of different directions and you know the 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 great freedom now balanced view kind of central message was like that that, all of that stuff is going to happen but just remember there's this kind of there's this thing behind it that is you Um, that was really really difficult for me to kind of wade through and find out mm. um, and, but, I, but I had this kind of really interesting and productive line of communication with the, the leader of the mo- movement Candace O'Denver and she and I had this really interesting email chain back and forth where she was being really great with me actually because I was, I was I was being you know critical Mr. Religious Studies mm. and she was kind of patiently giving her version of the events um, and uh, um, I still like. I still don't feel like the article that I published it was a good representation, uh, like a, like a, like a full representation. Partly there was the constraint of like you know it was eight thousand words long, and and I had to kind of do the whole history of the group and try and theorize them as well as describe them in eight thousand words, and that was that was kind of tough. But but also they were a new religious movement; they were still forming. Like right. it'd be like trying to. Um, <clears throat> trying to it'd be like trying to characterize an organism while it's like it's still up. gestating yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of yeah. the personality of a child while it's an infant exactly <laughs> yeah yeah oh man um 
we've been talking for an hour and it's a shame because I had I want to talk about so much other stuff but I think I should um, uh, wrap it up with two final questions just for the sake of brevity because I know you're busy and you have things to do and um, especially because it's week one with Emrez so we have to be mindful <laughs> of your time because uh, I want to talk about your damn it Harvard experience as well but <laughs> it's kind of my fault um, I suppose let's talk about a little bit about your aspirations what do you want what do you want to accomplish with your life and I know that's a big question but that can be in whatever context you want to um, talk about uh, so that's interesting actually um, when I was thinking you know as one does one mentally prepares for anything that one is going to go through and I was, so when I was kind of mentally preparing for coming and sitting down here and speaking with you I thought well probably the first thing Hamid's going to ask me is my name like, and who, like who are you introduce yourself and I thought the, what I would say is, I'm Alex Norman. I'm a father to Finn and to Elsie, and I'm the partner of Abby, and the son of Anthea and Michael, and the brother of Philip, Chris, and Andrew. In addition to that, I have the privilege of being able to serve the species by way of trying to increase our understanding of the universe in however incremental a way. My, my hope and my, like the thing that I aim for, the, the, the telos, the, the, like the end that I have in mind is like way, way, way batshit crazy. Um, but, you know, go with me. Um, we're going to have to leave Earth eventually. So, if, like, if we manage to survive ourselves, like, if we don't kill ourselves as a species in a few hundred thousand years' time, a few million years' time, we're, we're, we're going to have to depart. Eventually, there's the cycle of the, the, the solar system. There's the sun will expand and will, will engulf the Earth. Long before then, mm-hmm. we will need to be out of here. That will not simply be a planetary movement, but a... But a, but a um, a movement to another solar system. That act of travel, and that's where I, like my research interest in travel comes in, that act of travel is going to be profoundly difficult for us, not just technologically. I mean, the technological hurdles alone are, are like astonishing, uh, like literally astronomical, you know? <laughs> but, but in addition to those, and they are major, but in addition to them, there is going to be this... The, the most difficult thing, I think, for us will be to survive ourselves on that journey, to, to, to figure out how to live with each other. Mm. All of the things that we take for granted right now, being able to walk outside into the sunlight and like breathe relatively clean air, um, running water, uh, gravity, all of those things we need to we'll need to figure out how to live without those things, at least as they are here. Mm. So my, the, like the, that is the end I shoot for, knowing that we, that, that act of travel is to occur at some point way down the track um, in our species' future. And to do that, I think it's, it's my contention that to be able to do that, we're going to need to learn how to live with each other. Right now we live on the spaceship we call Earth. Mm. It's a self-contained system. We're doing a terrific job of screwing it. Terrific. 
Um, we're going to have to not do that because we'll be on a much smaller spaceship with much more limited resources. Um, and unless it turns into some kind of Lord of the Flies thing and we're good with that mm. and we'll just kill off everyone who we don't like and, and like leave those who we do, yeah. then we'll have the task of learning to live with each other as human beings and, and all of the other species as well um, before we can accomplish that act of moving to another solar system. Now, like to a lot of your listeners, like that probably sounds, well, that's your religion, man. <laughs> and like I'm fair with that, that call. Like if, if a religion is the thing that binds you, um, it gives you a sense of purpose and meaning in the world and like orients you, gives you that lodestar, that thing towards which you aim. Yeah, that's, that's my religion. I'm, I'm cool with that. Um, but, but like as in what motivates me, like understand like that act of travel, as I said, that will require understanding. And we've got a lot of understanding to do, like biological, chemical, um, astronomic, uh, astronomical in terms of accounting for the stars, physical, but sociological, psychological, cultural, historical as well to do that. That's really cool. You've brought in some sci-fi into that, which I'm a big fan of. Have you ever watched Expanse? I have, yeah. I haven't watched season two. I've only watched season one. It's so good, man. I know. Season one was awesome. Season two gets better. Um, Cool. It's really cool, yeah. You just remind me, but you're thinking of a time that um, goes beyond that because Expanse is only within our solar system. Mm. And I totally agree with you. I think... um, and while I was before coming to this interview, I was thinking, you know, um, what would be the use of religious studies? And um, I think you put it really nicely. You know, the more we understand about how we work and how we can get along, that's that has great utility for humanity in the future. The flip side of that question: What are you most afraid of looking into the future? Uh... Ignorance. Ignorance and um, the pursuit of knowledge that is not transparent and not accountable. Um, We're at this moment in our species history where we were never more abundant. We've never had the capacity to look after ourselves like we do now. We could, we could feed everyone in the world if we wanted to. We could ensure nobody was living in poverty. Um, the thing that afraids me, that, that make, fills me with fear is, is like kind of what we're doing now. Um, but also on a much more micro level, like pursuing knowledge in a territorial manner um, dismissing forms of knowing that are not like the form of knowing that you have um, I think we we have this terrific challenge before us like right now um, about climate change um, and about social justice um, that researchers across many fields have a lot of complex and contingent 
maybe not answers for, but at least contributions mm-hmm. to. But the capacity to deal with those those multiple uh, inputs requires clear thought and um, the capacity to try, to kind of sift and weigh up evidence and um, analysis on its merits. Um, and it also requires the commitment to follow expertise and advice. And one of the things that really makes me afraid is that we... Um, at least in Western democratic societies, we are pursuing a model of democracy that does not seem to want to include um, the pursuit of knowledge um, and the scientific method into its the very fabric of that democracy itself. Um, the 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 You know, the, the, the very fact, in a way, that you have to have this podcast to communicate the value of science and knowing says that it is in need, there is need to increase that understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, like I, you know, I have two kids and I, I look at... Um, you know, I, I look at them and, and I wonder what the future holds for them. And I, what I want for them is a future that is a bright and clean, um, a, a, a world, a social world that is compassionate um, and accountable and transparent. But what I see in the world around me doesn't quite look like that. And, and that's why I place myself where I am. Because I, I think, like, well, like I could shut myself off from that and, like, say, well, screw it. I'm, you know, I'll go and live in a hut. Mm-hmm. All of us will be like, come on, we're all, we're, we're going on a family trip. We're going to live in a hut in the country. We're just going to say, screw you guys. We're not going to participate in your society anymore. Um, but that's not the communal thing to do. Instead, we have to take a stand. And like the, the, the. The capacity I have is to take the stand of education. Um, and that, so that's, you know, I choose to be where I am. Mm-hmm. And um, I choose to try and make a difference, however small uh, and however interpretive and, um, uh, you know, uh, non-quasi and actually proper scientific it is. Because I'm, I'm one of those kind of people who thinks that the scientific method is like the most reliable method we have for knowing. There are plenty of other ways of knowing and they're good. But in terms of, you know, the, the reliability factor, the scientific method is pretty good mm. when practiced well. Mm. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's important to me to try and, try and imbue that love of knowing to, to anyone I can come into contact with here at the university. Cool. Thank you so much for your time, Alex. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I watched that. You know, I really like the Hunger Games. It's actually... 
I've, I should read the books. Have you seen the movies? Yeah. yeah. Have I told you about the Hangy Games? Yeah, tell us that you have, but tell, <laughs> tell everybody else. So, so last year I competed at the Chinese speaking competition, uh, the Hangy Tiao Bi Sai in China. I won the prelims here in Sydney, so I got I got the chance to represent, um, uh, you know, Australia with a group of I think four other students in the finals over there. And it was interesting because you realize um, how much of show business is just for show you know you think uh when you watch a show on tv it looks so like uh realistic and, and you think that oh this is how it must have gone down but in actuality dude it's like plastic surgery it's it, it's so different there was one stage so we had to do our speech give our speech so we, i did like a it was a 90 second speech for the finals and a 90 second like uh poem ta- talent recitation with the talent show which was me reciting this is Chinese. available on youtube isn't it that people can search and check yeah, out you and can uh, have a little grin yeah look look me up on uh, on youtube uh hamid siddiqui Chinese bridge competition, blah, blah, blah. But what was interesting is that it was like, it really gave me and the other contestants a, a clear understanding on, on how TV shows run. It's so fake, man. Like, for instance, the very first round, which was the speaking and the talent show was all real. Um, and then the subsequent round, so they wanted to make make it look like all the contestants were so learned about Chinese culture, Chinese history, uh, and all these nuances in, in TV shows and things like that. So what they did was they they gave us like 50 multiple choice questions, and they said you're going to be uh, you're going to be asked on these questions in a couple of days for the second round. And so, but but the weird thing was they'd given us those questions and the answers. So what <laughs> everyone had to do was yeah. just essentially memorize the answers yeah and i said man this is bullshit like this is nonsense and like i think 50 or 60 percent of the european contestants they they said this is nonsense this yeah. is rubbish this is like the high like the the hunger games you know they only want certain people to win <laughs> and so <laughs> they adopted the name the Hanyi games Hanyu uh means chinese language han uh, is like the han dynasty yu is like language and so it, we we started calling the Hanyu Tiao. We just started calling it the uh, the Hanyu Games, and it was so funny because <laughs> when they had so we went through like uh, we all had like a little booth. You know how you see uh, like on Family Feud they have like a little booth in front of them, and it's got your name, and you yeah, can choose yeah. between A to D, whatever. And so they put up the questions, and you could choose. So we went through it, and then the 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 Europeans, bro, this is how this is how rebellious they are, like around sixty or seventy percent of them purposely chose the wrong answer they just kept hitting the wrong answer on purpose (laughs) and once it was done dude somebody went (laughs) did they do the three finger salute everyone everyone who's there's like 50 of them all of them just raise their three think kiss their three fingers and then raise it <laughs> to the air the producers were free the, the producers were freaking out they're like Shimaisa, Shimaisa. like what is the meaning of this what is the meaning of this <laughs> oh, <laughs> and classic. so the chinese bridge competition became the hangi games you know because yeah. it kind of was analogous to the to the, to the Hunger Games. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. We should probably talk about Alex at some stage in this post-chat. Yeah, let's... Alex... I feel man. like, you know, not only does this guy have the same name as me, but he also gave his kid the same name as I gave, you know, he has Finn. He mentioned one of his kids' mm. names was Finn. Well, we, uh, we named um, our first son Finley. So Finn, I guess, is short for that. 
Maybe it's just your doppelganger, bro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Mm. Maybe he's living your life. Except I haven't walked what over a thousand k's. So yeah, that that was pretty crazy. Yeah, man, that's how you know your uh, student's dedicated to his research project. Yeah, <laughs> he's willing to walk exactly. twenty five kilometers a day. How far? In- how far did you walk for your MRS thesis? I'm not far at all, man. <laughs> <laughs> to my car. Yeah, <laughs> that's as far as yeah, I got. Nice. And I drove the rest of the way. <laughs> Maybe we can start with uh, how how he talked about this defining re- religion. I think the the term he used and the very academic term he said was problematizing the term religion. So how this this term religion is not really it's a bit nebulous. Like we use it in everyday language, like we all know what it means. But when you actually try and put it into an academic concept and really define it and lock in your definition so you know what you're talking about, it actually becomes quite difficult. I think you also mentioned there's this conflict between... So, you know, is, is, is religion about religious practice, so what it is that people do? Yeah. Or is it about um, what people believe? So believing in a god or believing that these particular texts are holy or, you know, that can hold essential dogma and stuff like that. So there's this, like, conflict about what actually is is religion and how it's defined. It's really it's it's really tricky because if you use one definition, which is, you know, let's say you, you judge a person's religion based on what they practice, then you have people like... Uh, uh, like he saw in his research project in India and in Europe, you know, those people mm. don't necessarily belong to that group. And yet... And also there's like, there's, you know, if you, same type of thing, if there's cultural Jews and things like this, so Jewish people who uh, practice Jewish customs but don't even believe in a God. Yeah. They still call themselves Jewish. So so that would be kind of, I guess, uh, looking at the, the, the practices and judging your kind of, judging them as being religious rather than what you actually believe it's it's a super you know when i think about the term um, as you're talking just a minute ago i was thinking um about time you know when you're zoomed out time makes sense yeah we have days we have weeks we have minutes and yeah and religion is very much uh, similar i think because when you're zoomed out yeah yeah religions we have islam christianity judaism buddhism blah mm. blah blah but when you zoom in it, it starts to get really ambiguous just yeah. with time. When and it's funny because that zoom in's essential for like academic work, I that's guess. That's right, which, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But when you zoom in, for instance, in time, like you break down a minute, okay, that's 60 seconds. Uh, you break down a second, then you keep zooming in. You're like, what is time? And you figure out time is just things happening. Yeah. Time really doesn't exist. It's just, it's almost like a, a human construct, but it's just things happening, you know? And it... It gets really trippy. Same thing with religion, as you said. When you zoom in, you have all these problems. You know, when you're trying to do religious studies, you're like, oh man, how do I, let's start with the definition of religion. And I think going back to the, the going, talking about the uh, definition of religion, I've heard people who are critical of science trying to uh, categorize science as a religion. Yeah, and, and this brings up, <coughs> sorry, this brings up, I think, what Alex was saying about how this problem of how we define the word religion comes with people's baggage. So if people want to discuss something in a particular context, they might define religion a certain way. So you may get you may get people who 
in the example you just brought up who want to say that science is a religion because they've got a beef with science or something like that so they want to they want to paint it in a negative light mm. and they they may say oh you know neil degrasse tyson is your god or he's yeah, your priest he's your priest he he's tells you what to do science. So, so they have all these <laughs> an- analogies yeah um and those people i guess are using the definition of religion then as being a set of practices yeah um so it's interesting that you know the people the way that they use they define religion a particular way to achieve their kind of goal to yeah. achieve their purpose it, it kind of um it tells you a bit about how about their goal and their purpose um i was gonna say something shit i forgot what i was gonna say but uh, oh i was gonna say so both alex and i are part of weird groups on facebook like creationist groups uh uh like anti-vaxxer groups all sorts of weird groups and it's funny because uh, in a lot of those groups people are very critical of uh science as being a a religion Mm. because they think that scientists are critical of religious people and religions in general uh due to the lack of critical thinking for instance which i think exists to a certain degree when you have a religion where um you know, when you ask a person, why is something like this? Oh, God did it, or God created it, God knows. Th- that is laziness, in my opinion. It's, it prevents you from actually exploring the issue and trying to come up with an answer. Yeah. So it's it's actually really fascinating how these, uh, let's say, creationists, um, they, they pretend or they act as though that science itself is a religion, that critical thinking is actually lacking in science, mm. and that... In their group, you know, they have all the critical thinking skills. Well, well it's interesting. Uh, um, a friend I, on Facebook, uh, Bill Ludlow, that I mean, I'll tell him to listen to this episode, um, recently had uh, an internet debate with a very uh, popular creationist called Ken Hoven, and he said the exact same thing in this debate. <coughs> Ken Hoven is creationist. He said, you know, evolution's just your religion, Bill. You know, mm-hmm. like you just want to teach it to kids because it's your religion. So. He's kind of like he wants. He has this need to kind of paint ev- believing in evolution as a religion because he thinks it's a bad thing, and he's going to like point, poke holes in it. Mm. But the way he does that is saying it's a religion because you want to teach it to kids. So he's saying that this is like what people do. Yeah, you're doing the same stuff as that religious people do. Therefore, you, it's a religion. And mm. I think there's a little bit of a simplistic way of looking at it, obviously, because I don't think believing in evolution is a religion. But um, it's interesting how he's using a particular definition, to get back to what Alex was talking about, yeah. he's using a particular definition of religion to achieve his goal of kind of like, you know, piling people, a u 2 kind of piling yeah. uh, someone he disagrees with. Right, and by putting... Uh, by categorizing science as a religion, then they already have a religion, and their religion is correct, and therefore science must be incorrect. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, again that it it illuminates what the purpose behind uh, or what the intent is by using the term religion uh, or how it's used, which yeah, is fascinating. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting, and I've actually uh, the definition of religion is something I've thought about a lot because you know on the. <coughs> When you first think, oh, what, is, what does it mean to be religious? What is a religion? The first thing that comes to my mind, oh, they have to believe in a god. But then there's religions like Buddhism where they don't necessarily even believe in a god. So, so that kind of uh, reveals some biases in my own reasoning when you think about it like Is that. atheism a religion? Well, so, yeah, I've heard this one too, you know. People say, oh, atheism is a religion, yeah. But 
they'll they'll look at they'll use the the what people do example like oh you know Richard Dawkins you you read Richard Dawkins books so therefore that's your holy book that's your Bible so they're saying that what you do by reading a book by a particular author makes you religious which is kind of like this getting getting back to what Alex was saying again you know this like they define religion a particular way because they have this vested interest in saying that what you do is religious yeah hmm it's weird isn't it yeah it's a tricky i was just thinking i'm like man is there just like there's a you know how you but, have but sorry to cut you off but um because i wanted to finish on that point as well it's interesting that it's kind of a little bit of both you know i was wrong to think it's wrong just to say our oh, religious religions are things that believe in gods because that's not quite true either there's examples of religions that don't believe in gods so i think the way alex seem to be approaching it as what are these things that all religions have in common one of the thing he mentioned was community which is very interesting as well um and i think as well religions in my total layman experience there's a certain reliance on dogma as well which meaning like ancient wisdom that gets hand down handed down either through religious text or story so I think that's probably something that a lot of religions have in common. What about the central dogma in science? And, and maybe, maybe, but, but <laughs> no, dogma in, yeah, no, but that's true. But dogmas in science get broken, right? So you, you think about the central dogma in molecular biology, that DNA into RNA into protein, it's getting broken down. So in science, we like make ourselves famous by breaking down dogma, where I think most religions that I'm aware of kind of, they have a reverence for dogma. Mm. And, that, and that would apply to even religious uh, practices that don't worship gods, like Buddhism and things like that. They, right. There's this, this idea, uh, reliance on ancient wisdoms passed down through the ages. Right. Um, I do want to say, uh, talking about dogma, and um, perhaps a paradigm is a better word when we're talking about science. Scientists can get attached to their own ideas and the paradigm that's been established. In fact, yeah. I've heard uh, people say that scientific uh, progression happens uh, out like... Uh, so Thomas Kuhn did a lot of stuff on yeah, scientific well, I was gonna say, paradigm like scientific, Yeah, it happens after like all the old people who are already in the field die. You know, it's like everyone who has a certain paradigm they they defend it because that's all the, and this is a, a real problem in science that does exist you know um, people who teach something all their lives and they build a career out of teaching that and then they might get confronting evidence that contradicts what they've been teaching and so they fight against that evidence yeah so, yeah you know that it's <coughs> well, not like scientists are people too and but i think the there's a mechanism in science that kind of gets people off their dogma because you're right because like scientists are people and people do cling to the ideas that they think are true it's a natural human reaction but this mechanism in science that kind of prevents that is the way you get famous in science is by disproving other people's ideas by disproving those dogmas that's how you make a name for yourself in science right uh, it's not by just clinging to dogmas the whole time so this creates kind of a like uh, where you, you don't just have to believe a dogma you've got to disprove other people's dogmas in science. So there's mm. this constant kind of fight, and that mechanism is almost like a, a self-correcting error yeah. mechanism in science. It is, yeah. Um, but ag again, that 
um, because of that, you know, science is, is very conservative because there, you require a lot of evidence to break that new that, that paradigm and to yeah. set a new paradigm, which means that... Well, if you're going to tell someone they're wrong you publicly, you've got to you know why to, they're yeah. wrong. Yeah. No, no, I totally agree, yeah. and I think that's important. Yeah, exactly. But one of the challenge or one of the limitations of the scientific method, and I think we've spoken about this previously, is that it can take so long until it's conclusively shown to be one thing yeah, or another. Yeah, it's baby steps. It moves very slowly. So and, and I think it's important just to put in one caveat here is that Alex was talking about accepting other ways of knowing and uh, looking at different ways of knowing as well. So I think the scientific method is a very good and reliable way of knowing, but not necessarily the only way of knowing. What, what are some other ways? Well, we could look at like philosophy and things like this, and they help us. And, and it depends on where we're going to draw that distinction between the humanities and the sciences as well, but y you could possibly draw... A, a distinction there yeah so if you're not going to class some of the humanities as science hard science there's still ways of knowing yeah right right well let's talk about because uh actually we were, we're just discussing this different ways of knowing and well that links into one of alex's fears because he said his fear was that fear of ignorance right that people will dismiss ways of knowing without really understanding them mm. um and that this is bad because then we're not thinking critically as a society. So, yeah, I think that's a fear I share with him that because I kind of, as a skeptic, I feel like if we base our society on things that we can demonstrate um, and we, we have a, a scientifically based society that where people actually understand the scientific method and the importance of science, I think that's going to be good for our future. But I don't think we're there yet. I think we're living in a society where science really isn't a big part of our decision-making processes, particularly in politics, even. And um, well, you don't and want that's scary. You don't want a bunch of atheists making policy, right? <laughs> hey, I said scientists, <laughs> not atheists. I think uh, most scientists are probably not atheists, but yeah, really? yeah, I, I'd imagine. I'd have to look at some that's, stats on that, but yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd imagine that it's. Reflective of the wider community, most people, atheists are pretty small in number. Hmm, maybe. Um, it, it, Alex's point about ignorance is something that I think everyone should be concerned about. Um, I want to be critical about religions in general and, and talk about my personal experience. I mean, so did you say you're going to be critical of religions in general? Yeah. Okay, bring it on. Oh, look at you. <laughs> the inner atheist of I'm you so just celebrating. I'm like, so excited. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's coming to the side of the devil. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, what's something that I do see in religious communities, um, th this isn't just Islam or Christian, I think a lot of people who, uh, or I shouldn't say a lot of people, I, I think people who belong to any ideology, um, particularly one that's been established, you know, hundreds of years or thousands of years ago, there's this tendency um, to, or a nostalgic tendency, so they look back to ancient knowledge, as you were saying, to find answers, and when you don't have answers for things, um, then, you know, they just put it on to God. And I don't like that, man. I, I think that's really dangerous. And I, I kind of made yeah. the point, but I think religious p people, and I've seen this in my own community, there's, there's a lot that you can't, uh, that there's, I think it puts a barrier in people's minds. And I don't think it's a religion thing. I think it's a cultural, I think culture plays a big part of it. Well, people don't like not having answers to questions. Yeah. And like, and, and, like that's good, right? It makes you when you don't know something, it makes you feel uneasy, and so I kind of get it. 
Um, but, but that's the exciting part yeah. for me. Like for me, not knowing or knowing that there's things that we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, and, but I think that there is a need for a lot of people to have answers for questions that they don't know, right. like, like life after death. Right. Like people are worried about that. You know, we don't know what happens when we die. True. Yeah. Um, I know what happens to you, bro. Yeah. You go yeah. to Satan's uh, house and throw a party, <laughs> right? Yeah. But we burn hellfire. But if we, um, <laughs> no, but, but the point I was trying to make is, uh, so God kind of answers those questions. Right. right. But, uh, but I think the problem for me is, and you're probably just about to say this, that God, answers in scare quotes those questions and, and god answers everything but in actual fact god answers nothing really yeah mean? so like once you say god did it yeah then you don't ask the question anymore and you yeah, don't actually yeah, have yeah. an answer because right. even if god did do it how how did, how did god do it yeah, that's yeah interesting. exactly so so yeah. that's and i think that's where you're getting at and this fear of ignorance it's it's saying the answer is God is actually problematic That's whether ignorance. it's the answer is God yeah. or not because if, if you say the answer is God then you're inclined just to stop there stop and the I know there's, there's always going to be ex- exceptions to the rule here where people do go out and investigate it mm-hmm. but I think for a lot of people um, the wider community once they hit that it was God that's where dangerous. their investigation stops yeah. and that's really sad and, and, and it's sad because it keeps that ignorance in our society you know yeah. and by ignorance doesn't it's not necessarily a negative word it just means you don't know stuff you don't know stuff and it, and it stops you from knowing stuff and yeah. this is what Neil deGrasse Tyson I, I was listening, watching a lecture of his and he was doing a great job on um, going through the Islamic scholars in the past and you know all the discoveries they made and it's interesting because when they figured something out they have a mechanism they said light travels in straight lines here's how I, I determined it you know this is my experimental work and then when there were questions that they couldn't answer well uh, that's up to God Yeah, God knows you know which is understandable but I think they knew um, I think there's wisdom in knowing what you can find out and what you can't find out, yeah, right, because of technological limitations or whatever the case may and be, and you should embrace the uncertainty. You have to, you have to, instead of just putting in some placeholder answer for these questions that we don't know yet, these answers that we don't know yet, you should embrace the uncertainty. You should be able to say, "I don't know," as yeah. your answer. When I talk about religious leaders specifically. Those, and I can only talk about my own people here, but. Uh, this is prevalent in every religion, but I've heard many, many scholars make some pseudo-scientific claims. And this is something we've spoken about before, how like religions become really simple, and, and, and specifically Islam, because they've removed philosophy, they've removed a lot of the mm. nuances that they had previously. And so you get people who learn like religious scriptures, which is, okay, good, but they have no understanding of how the world works, how ethics works, how, yeah. how science works, how molecular biology works. And so they come with these really ridiculous conclusions about how the world works. And it's not representative of reality. And, and, and they use religion as a, as a means of, you know, uh, uh, of protecting themselves, putting themselves in a cocoon from, from the outside world. And this is something that Alex, was, uh, Alex and I were talking about, not you, Alex Norman. You know, but people separating themselves from the community, from, mm. from society and trying to, like, w- wait for the rapture or whatever, you know. Th- that, that I think, is, like, ridiculous and dangerous. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's scary. And um, another thing I think that kind of touches on this is 
religion kind of confronts those big questions, and, and, and Alex mentioned this too, and I think that's where it does come into conflict with science because science quite often tackles those big questions too. You know, where did we come from? Yeah, why are we here? How did the universe begin? These are big questions that traditionally have been answered by God did it, you know, and you can insert your own specific God who did it into that equation. But now when we're starting to get a scientific understanding, we're starting to find out the ways that it happened naturally. And that's where I think a lot of this conflict between science and religion occurs. So this is, I guess, I, I think the lingo for this kind of idea in religious thinking is the um the god of the gaps argument i don't know if you've heard that term no. before so and and i think this fits into a lot of arguments for god i've, I've heard it into a lot of different areas this idea that it's a, it's more of a derogatory term right god of the gaps so you believe in a god of the gaps so where our gaps are in knowledge you insert god into oh, those gaps right yeah and that's how you answer your gaps in knowledge. So the God you believe in is a God of the gaps. What happens when you've got no gaps left? Your God gets very small and small, yeah? <laughs> no. um, so God is an ever-receding pocket of ignorance. Yeah? Oh, wow. This, this, this ignorance gets smaller and smaller, and God just gets smaller and smaller as our knowledge progresses. But it's, it's, important, to, um, it's important to acknowledge this, I think, because it's... It's a poor argument for God, and as we mentioned earlier, it really stops and stifles our ability to learn, which is what we should all be aiming for. Yeah, I, I don't like God serving that sort of purpose. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I it's, and like it's that. interesting, I talk to a lot of religious people don't like God serving that purpose either. When you express it like that to religious people, they're like, yeah, I don't want to believe in that God, yeah. because that's not a good God to believe in. No. But I think a lot of arguments for God can like be really, uh, really released down into the, that type of argument. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's, that's a weird argument. But you and I always talk about religion. Alex and I are fascinated by uh, epistemology and theology, I, I think. Even though we're scientists, it's, it's a weird thing. Yeah. And for the, for the people that believe in a God, uh, what we're saying doesn't necessarily negate the existence of a higher power. You know, definitely yeah, exactly. there's a possibility. I mean, I think the most logical position to take is not so much the position that you're 100% certain that God exists or 100% certain that God doesn't exist. You should be in a position where you don't know. Yeah, and I think it's important to acknowledge as well as why we're talking about how God, inserting God to answer questions that you don't understand can stifle your learning. It doesn't have to. There's yeah. plenty of people who really embrace learning about the world and embrace science who also believe in God. And I think the, the way that they would deal with it is if you believe in God, then you believe that nature is created by God. Mm -hmm. So one way to understand God is to study nature, mm. is to do science. So I think that can be a really actually productive way of, of where a God belief can encourage people to be open to learning and understanding. But did it's a double-edged sword, you know? Did you just make science a religion? <laughs> <laughs> you Neil deGrasse Tyson's your God, man. Yes no, you understand God by understanding science, dude. That's a wild claim you just made. Shit. Yeah. But um, um, let's talk about the last one because we can his, talk about... His aspirations his as well. Aspirations. Yeah, we should, we should get on to that. Uh, because I, I liked it, Alex's aspirations too. Yeah. He, he sees the future. And I think what he's saying is definitely right. In the future, I don't think we're going to be sticking just to Earth. We might have teleports. We'll, we'll like, have to, right? I think it's like what if we three million years or something. The sun's going to expand and eat up the Earth. So the Earth is. Three million years? Yeah. The I Earth thought it was a billion years from. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. 
billions of years from now. Yeah, I don't think that maybe Earth I'm is wrong. Going to, yeah, but to be honest, I can't see us being here. If humanity still exists, then we may go extinct before we may like there may be a nuclear holocaust to wipe each other out. Oh shit! You know what I think would be cool if we had a situation like Stargate. It'd be so nice. Yeah, like we could go to different solar systems, different galaxies, and we had these portals. So that'd be awesome. Yeah. But what I liked about his idea was that, uh, you you know, in the future when we're traveling. we're going to have, like, it's a spaceship. Essentially, we're on a spaceship right now. People don't think about it, but yeah, the Earth we're, is a we're spaceship. flying through space right now. Yeah, hurling exactly. through the, yeah, through the space. Um, and we're going to go on a different spaceship, especially if we're looking for uh, a new Earth. Hmm. So, and that journey is going to take ages. Yeah, and it's interesting because, and I, I was guilty of this as well, we only think of the tech, right? Oh, how are we going to travel at light speed? How are we going to, you know, bend space to go these huge distances? How are we going to find Earth-like planets? Uh, what's the ship going to be like? You know, we have all these kind of technological hurdles that we're thinking about overcoming. Um, and Alex's point was that we need to focus on the social issues as well because... As a society living on a ship, we're going to have lots of social problems that will probably be just as big, if not worse, than these technological problems. Mm. And that if we need to, if we're going to live on a ship like this, a really small, much smaller ship than the Earth flying through space, then we need to learn to live with each other. And I think that's, it sounded like that was the, really the basis of his aspirations and why he is where he is today, to, to understand how we can learn to live with each other. Yeah. I think it's really cool. I like how he made it sci-fi, looked into the future, and put his uh, his his research and his interest in context in that way. So I thought it was really cool. Yeah, it's brilliant. Should we call it a day? I think so. Yeah. All right, guys. Next week we will have James uh, Avanatakis, who's the dean of graduate research at Western Sydney University. He's a really interesting dude. Um, what else? Oh, yeah. By the way, guys, you got to go on our Facebook page and rate and review us because we've had zero people do that. We've had some iTunes reviewers, which is really good, but it, the Facebook's really easy. Just give us five stars <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> whatever you think is uh, – what do you, uh, no, whatever no, no. you think we – Give us we, five stars. Oh <laughs> Be more subtle, dude. Um, yeah, and uh, it really does help spread – also, uh, too, uh, we want to call for viewer feedback, like uh, listener feedback. If you guys have any questions for any of the guests we have on, shoot them to us and we'll try and get them to answer it for you. And also, uh, we're starting a blog soon. We mentioned that previously. So feel free to send us some articles and things that you've written that have to do with science or science communication or a scientific journey, things like this, and maybe we'll publish them on our blog or research journey related anything you can you can make a barely science as long as that's good and interesting we'll put up yep there you go there we go give us the content all right <laughs> ladies and gentlemen see you guys next week see you later oh you didn't go bye bye oh no shit <laughs>